and you may be seated. Uh, yeah, so good problems. We have some good problems today. We ran out of bulletins, which is always exciting to run out of bulletins, uh, because that means that there are more people here than we were expecting to be here. So if you were visiting here with us for the first time, we are glad to have you here. Welcome. Uh, if you've been here for years and years and years and you had to give up your seat today because somebody said that, just rejoice in that. Rejoice in having to give up your seat. It's a lot better than the opposite problem, trust me. Years ago, when I was a youth intern here at Byfield, there were a lot of old Bibles in the parish house. The parish house is this building over here to the right, if you're facing the main building. They were cheap paperback Bibles. You, know, you don't give the kids nice Bibles, right? Um, and many of them, they had been really used well. They were missing covers. They were missing whole sections of scripture. Some of them, maybe kids had written their names in and been scribbling. These Bibles were not in good condition. And so I asked the other youth leaders, I was like, Guys, what are we supposed to do with all these old Bibles? Because it felt weird just to, you know, take a Bible and throw it in a garbage can and walk away. That felt odd. I, so I said, is it like a flag? Do you, do you burn the Bible? That also felt odd to me. Uh, and so nothing happened probably. I think I moved on to other things. My dilemma about what to do with the Bibles was tied to their nature. When we interact with Scripture, it is more than just ink and paper. I would not feel weird throwing away a novel that was of similar length to the Bible or any other book. I would feel fine using an old book to start a fire in a fireplace. Bibles take on a meaning that surpasses the paper and ink used to create them. The Bible is, we believe, the Word of God, which is why I found it difficult to dispose of one, even when it was obviously called for. Today's sermon is going to be focused on communion. The connection between communion and the story I just shared is that in both cases, physical objects with no special properties are imbued with transcendental meaning. So we're going to attempt to unravel what the Bible tells us about communion. For that unraveling, we return to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. That's page 901 if you're using the Pew Bible. We'll begin reading in the 23rd verse of the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Hear the word of the Lord. Right. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the, Lord, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The verses we just read contain three points about communion that we need to acknowledge. Communion is commanded. Communion is symbolic, and communion is a proclamation. We're going to address each of those points in turn. Communion is commanded, communion is symbolic, and communion is a proclamation. First, communion is commanded. <clears throat> the command to take communion as a regular part of worship in the New Testament is unusual. In general, the New Testament doesn't give many specifics about what our worship ought to consist of. The guidelines we have for worship are broad. Matthew 18, 20 says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 add, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Colossians 3.16 is a little more specific, telling Christians we should let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Corinthians 14.26 has a similar message to Colossians. Paul writes, What then, brothers, when you come together... Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The New Testament makes clear Christians are supposed to meet regularly to build one another up. This building up will happen through teaching, admonishing, and encouraging through hymns and lessons. Over time... A pattern of corporate worship has developed in Western churches that to many feels set in stone. When we gather here at Byfield Parish, we sing, pray, have a sermon, sing some more, and then do an offertory. That's a, that's a great way to worship together, but it is not an exact routine that has been commanded in the Bible. The lack of specific information on how God's people should worship is particularly noticeable when contrasted with the Old Testament. Much of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy contains specific commands for the people of Israel on exactly how they should worship. Recently, my oldest son has been trying to read through this portion of the Bible for the first time, 
And he expressed consternation about all the details regarding worship in these books and how often they are repeated to me. And any of you that have ever tried to read through the Bible, you can relate to that, right? You do the, you do the read the Bible through a year plan and you're doing really good. And then you get to Exodus and it starts to slow down a little bit. And then you get to Leviticus, like right around March, and you're just like, I, I can't even. I don't, I don't know what is going on here. In the Old Testament, no detail of how to worship is insignificant. God told the Israelites how to build the tabernacle, what the priests should wear, and what offerings should be made on which occasion. A lot of the reason Christians dislike reading these books is that they don't grasp the logic underlying all of these specific commands on how to worship. The command to take communion is unusual in the New Testament because it feels like a carryover from the Old Testament. And in many ways, that is exactly what communion is. It is a continuation of the Old Testament into the New. God is telling one big story throughout the Bible. The command to take communion is a command to remember the story that God has already told. In today's verses, Paul is reiterating the command Jesus spoke to his disciples to take communion that is recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the one and only time in all of Paul's writings that he directly quotes Jesus. It's the only time. That is an extraordinary fact worth exploring. Now, there are some straightforward reasons why that is the case. Historians believe that the earliest Gospels were written, the earliest was the Gospel of Mark, it was written about A.D. 55. And historians believe that 1 Corinthians was written at that exact same time, or in that same vicinity. So it's not like Paul was looking back at the Gospels and using them as a resource for what he was writing. Paul knew and understood Jesus' teaching, but he probably didn't have access to exact quotes to the same extent that we do. And we also know that direct quotation was not the norm in the New Testament, even for Peter, James, and John, who heard Jesus speak firsthand. The question that naturally arises is, why in these verses does Paul quote Jesus? What explains the exception? The answer is pretty straightforward. The Corinthians are taking communion in a fashion that is in direct contradiction to how Jesus commanded it. Paul pointing this out furthers an argument he is trying to make with it. I believe there is an additional aspect to why Paul quotes Jesus in these verses that we would do well to consider. Communion was incredibly important to the early church. They took communion very seriously, or at least they were supposed to. Paul's frustration with the Corinthians 
is that they are not taking communion seriously enough. It is common among Christians today to not take communion seriously enough. In the same way, we fail to grasp the point of the commands given in the Old Testament for worship, we fail to grasp the importance of the command to take communion in the New. Communion is commanded by both Jesus and Paul because of its importance for Christians. This brings us to our second point. Communion is symbolic. A symbol is a thing that represents or stands for something else, especially a material object representing something abstract. We are surrounded by symbols in our everyday life, symbols of that. Every dollar you hold in your pocket or your bank account represents an agreed upon value that society has broadly recognized. The American flag is a symbol for our nation. The amount of power a particular symbol has is commiserate with the idea that it communicates. A swastika is taken very seriously because it is connected with war, murder, and hate. The symbol for the New York Jets football team, that green and white slanting logo is not taken seriously. <laughs> because historically, the Jets have been a joke, although we might have to retire that joke sooner than we would like. It is common in the modern world to not take symbols as seriously. After all, a symbol is not a real thing. Not valuing symbols is a recent development. It used to be the case in wars that armies would go into battle with flags, with, with colors that symbolize the army itself or units within the army. Armies developed special groups of soldiers, a color guard, for the express purpose of guarding these Flags. Men would give their lives to defend these flags or to try to capture them because the flag, it symbolized the army itself. To many today, valuing a symbolic flag enough that a person would sacrifice their life to protect it, it seems kind of idiotic. In the minds of the soldiers of the time, they weren't fighting for a piece of fabric. They were fighting for the honor and pride the flag represented. Well, I'm not pushing for the army to return to valuing flags. I do think we have lost something our ancestors understood when it comes to symbols. The symbol itself doesn't matter in and of itself. It matters because of what it represents. The symbol allows us to interact with the idea on a physical, material level. 
Humans were designed by God to experience the world through our senses. By associating an idea with a physical object, we are able to interact with the idea mind, body, and spirit. In one sense, when we take communion, we are eating a cracker and drinking grape juice. There's nothing inherently special about either of those elements. However, when they are used as symbols, they matter a great deal. The bread and cup of communion symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ given on the cross. Through communion, we are remembering. Our recollection is not just the atonement of Christ, although it is certainly that. We are remembering the sacrifice that brought Jesus to the cross. We are remembering the covenantal relationship the cross makes possible for us. Much of the symbolic worship of the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus. Through communion, we symbolically look back. While the bread and cup are common elements, the meaning those elements take on is transcendent. The official teaching of the Catholic Church is that the bread and cup transform into the actual body and blood of Christ in communion, which is referred to as the Eucharist in Catholic settings. In this room, many of you grew up in Catholic churches and are familiar with that. In rejecting this teaching, many Protestant churches have gone to the opposite extreme that in effect denies communion is special at all. Symbols can have real meaning and value. They can represent our most sacred ideas in a hands-on way. That is certainly the case when it comes to communion. Through taking the symbol of communion, we are commanded to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus breaks down this proclamation into two large subcategories through the statements he made when he originally handed the bread and the cup to his disciples, which Paul quotes. For the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. With these words, Jesus is establishing the symbolic connection between his body and the bread consumed in communion. Fully unpacking all the implications of the bread symbolizing the body of Christ would take more than a single sermon. What we know is that Jesus is saying this in reference to him giving his body on the cross for us. The bread symbolizes our need for atonement and Jesus' satisfaction of that need. Jesus' body was broken for our sin. Through consuming the bread in communion, we are proclaiming our need of Christ giving his life so that we might have life. 
For the cup, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. With these words, he's establishing the symbolic connection between his blood and the cup of communion. When we take communion, we don't tend to focus on this symbolism as heavenly. The new covenant isn't as much of a focus for evangelical Christians as the atonement for sin that Jesus and Paul already mentioned previously. The importance of the new covenant relationship Christians enjoy because of what Christ did should not be ignored. The blood Jesus shed on our behalf makes it possible for us to exist in a restored relationship with God. Communion doesn't just point back to what Jesus did for us when we were forgiven for our sins. It points forward to the grace that makes it possible to move forward in the present and the future. The proclamation happening through communion is a proclamation of the local gathering of Christians, which is the church. Paul is not talking to the Corinthians as individuals. He is speaking to them as a corporate gathering through communion. We declare with one voice what Jesus has done for us. In this way, it functions like the battle colors armies used to carry that I talked about earlier. In addition to these colors symbolically representing the units that carried them, they were also a rallying point during hectic battles. If a soldier or unit got separated from the larger army, they would, they would look for their flags which served as a rallying point. Communion serves as a rallying point for us as Christians. In the fog that envelops us in our daily lives, we can easily lose track of various aspects of our faith. We can lose track of Christian community. Communion brings us back together. It symbolically represents the central truth of the gospel that we gather around. There are a couple of practical matters that I would like to address regarding how we make the proclamation of communion here at Bifield. We do communion monthly. This is in keeping with the historical practice of many churches that are similar to our own. The reason that practice developed is out of a desire to do communion often enough that it is not forgotten, but not so often it becomes a routine that breeds contempt. Here at Byfield, we do not limit who partakes in communion. We leave it up to the conscience of the individual with the expectation communion will be taken seriously enough that those who shouldn't take it won't. And we're going to talk more next week about 
those who shouldn't take it and why. As a general rule, we don't want to keep anyone from being able to proclaim the body and blood of Christ that communion symbolizes. We do make it clear that those who partake in communion should be those with a basic faith in Jesus Christ. If a child has a basic understanding of what communion symbolizes that their parents are comfortable with, we welcome them to participate. In a few minutes, we are going to take communion together as a congregation. As we do so, I hope we will consider deeply what we are doing. We are doing what Jesus commanded and Paul echoed. We are embracing the symbolism of communion. Jesus gave his body so that our sins could be atoned for. He spilled his blood so that we could be in a covenant relationship with God. Father, Son, and Spirit. When we take communion as we are commanded, we are proclaiming as individuals and as a community the core message of the gospel. As a church, we don't do communion out of habit. We do communion to remember all that God has done for us. These elements symbolize the eternal truths that are the basis for our belief and our community. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we will take communion together. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for everyone in this room. I want to thank you for the faith that is, that is exhibited here. That we can join in proclaiming together what Jesus did for each of us on the cross. What he did for us bringing us into a covenant relationship with you. We thank you for all of that, Lord. We pray that any sins that have come into our lives that have come into the way of us being able to proclaim these great truths, Lord, that we would repent of those sins, that we would turn from them. I ask that you would be with us as we take communion individually and also as we take it together, and that through this proclamation, you would be glorified. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.